The 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, You are as much serving God in looking after your own children and training them up in God's fear and minding the house and making your household a church for God as you would be if you'd been called to lead an army to battle for the Lord of hosts. When you think about, when you think about the call of Christ on every Christian's life, the call to make disciples, and of course everything that goes along with that, like showing people who Jesus is by first sharing the truth about him in love, right? And then leading them to him. And then once they come to Christ, continuing to teach them and shepherd them and protect them and, of course, sacrifice for them, uh, hold them accountable to equip them to do the work of the ministry and then guide them through life. When you, when you think about all of that that is involved in the lifelong process of making disciples, honestly, I cannot think of a better example of someone who answers that call to the highest degree more than a mother. Truth is, there is no higher calling than motherhood because it embodies so much of the heart of Christ for his people. And so each year, uh, each year we take one day, right? One day out of 365 of them to publicly recognize our mothers for who they are and what they've done for us over the previous 364 of them. It seems meager. Uh, at best, if we're being honest. Absurd, actually. Uh, nonetheless, to all of our mothers here today, uh, all of you listening and watching, we thank you beyond words. We love you earnestly and deeply. We respect you more than you know. We honor you for who you are and for what you do every single day of the year. Because the heart of the mother mirrors the heart of Christ in so many ways. And one of the things you can almost always count on a mother to do is to tell you what you need to hear, even when that's not what you want to hear, right? How many of you are grateful for a mom who wasn't afraid to tell you the truth, even when that was the last thing you wanted to hear? And, and, and why did mom do that? Because she loves you. And so even if telling you the truth means wounding your heart, at times, moms will do that in order to bring you back to where they know you need to be. And so much like so many of the character traits that mothers have in common with Jesus, I'm telling you, speaking the truth, even when the truth is unwelcome news, is no exception. Jesus, in fact, never hesitated to say what was true, even when it was offensive to those he was speaking to, as we see in Matthew 15, 10 through 14, when he was teaching and he, he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And that was a, that was a really harsh thing to say to a group of religious Jews, but Jesus said what needed to be said, even when it was offensive. He also never hesitated to say what was true, even when it hurt other people's feelings, as in the story of the rich young man who asked Jesus what he needed to do to be saved. You can read about that in Matthew 19. 16 through 22, where Jesus says, sell what you possess and give to the poor 
and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus was willing to hurt other people's feelings if that's what it took for them to hear the truth. And by the way, Jesus also never hesitated to say what was true, even when it cost him many of his own friends, which you can read about in the story in John 6, 60 through 66, where after teaching a particularly hard truth, John says many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many, John says, of Jesus' own disciples abandoned him. For what? For speaking the truth. Why? Because the truth is not what they wanted to hear. And you know what's really interesting about each one of these stories is the fact that the people who were offended and hurt and put off by Jesus sharing the truth were God's people. Those who claimed to belong to Yahweh, the one true God, the Hebrew people, his chosen people. That's why Jesus wept over Jerusalem as he entered the city on Palm Sunday, because of how far God's people had drifted away from him because of what they allowed in their lives. And yet Jesus loved them so much that he was more than, listen, he was more than willing to wound their hearts with the truth. Because listen, sometimes a wounded heart is good for the soul because often a wounded heart can lead us back to Christ. That's, uh, that's what happened to Peter after he was forced to confront the truth about his denial of the Christ three times. That's what happened to Thomas after questioning the truth about the resurrection. That's what happened to David after being confronted with the truth about his affair with another man's wife. That's what happened with Naomi after realizing the truth about the profound blessing that Ruth actually was in her life. That's what happened to Jonah uh, after having to face the truth about his own sinful heart toward the people of Nineveh. And I'm telling you, that's what happened with the Israelites in our story today, as we'll see as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, where the people of God had drifted so far from God without even realizing it, that the only way to bring them back was to allow their hearts to be deeply wounded with the truth. And that's exactly what God did. And listen, that's exactly what God does. Why? Because he loves you. And he wants you to come back to him when you drift away from him. And so listen, uh, if you're nursing a wounded heart today, it just may be that God is trying to call you back to himself, which, by the way, uh, will lead you to some choices every time. And depending upon the choices you make, that wounded heart of yours can either become a hardened heart, one that leads you further from Christ, or a healed heart, one that is restored to Christ. And make no mistake about it, those choices are yours to make and yours alone. As I've said before, you are as close to God in your life right now as you want to be. Because there's only one person in all the world who can ever keep you from God. And that person is you. Okay, you, you, you can blame your lack of closeness to God on other people, on the wounds they've caused in your life or on difficult circumstances and the wounds they've caused in your life. And that's exactly what we do. But those are actually choices we make. 
critical choices when we allow a wound to drive us further from God rather than closer to him. And yet he intends for your wounds to drive him closer, to drive you, excuse me, closer to him. Why? Because he loves you and he wants your heart all to himself. He loves you. That's why he allows you to be wounded at times in your life because he loves you and he wants your heart all to himself. So let's jump back into the story right where we left off last time at 1 Samuel chapter 7 and see what we can learn about how a wounded heart can actually lead you back to Christ if you will let it. We'll begin by reading the first six verses. 1 Samuel chapter 7 verses 1 through 6. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So the Ark of the Covenant is moved to the house of Abinadab, probably because Shiloh was destroyed by the Philistines, which is actually alluded to in several passages in both Jeremiah and the Psalms. And the reason for moving it to Abinadab's house specifically is because his son uh, Eleazar was considered to be spiritually fit among the Israelites to care for the ark, as we'll see. And so the, the profound importance of which, caring for the ark properly, uh, the Israelites were reminded of that painfully in the previous chapter, as dozens of them, if not more, who were not Levites, were dropping over dead just by looking at it. And so they take the ark to Eleazar at his father's house. Now, why Eleazar? Why, uh, why is he so special, right? Well, there are 11 people in the Bible named Eleazar, which means, by the way, God has helped. And it was a name that was commonly associated with priestly genealogies, such as the one found in Exodus 6.23, which names those who are directly descended uh, from Aaron. So most likely, this particular Eleazar, like those before him, was a Levite, which meant unlike most Israelites, Eleazar was actually qualified to oversee the care of the ark according to the word of the Lord. And yet, even though now secure and firmly back in the hands of the Israelites and under the care of a Levite, verse 2 tells us the Israelites lamented for some 20 years, which seems odd, but it was actually for good reason. You see, their cities were in ruins. Their armies were decimated and their daily lives were under Philistine domination, all because they had allowed their hearts to drift far from God. And listen, uh, this wasn't a decision overnight to abandon God's desire for their lives. It was a gradual acclamation and acceptance and even more so an embrace of the secular culture around them, which over time blinded them to how far they'd actually drifted away from God. Okay, until this moment, the Israelites didn't understand that they'd actually rejected the Lord because they never actually said, we don't want you. 
God. We don't want Yahweh. They never explicitly rejected him. No, they simply wanted to serve their God while serving the Canaanite gods as well. You see, as far as they were concerned, it was a win-win. We, we can be God's people. We can enjoy all the pleasures and benefits of these other pagan gods as well, which they thought was okay until Samuel called on all of Israel to turn their backs on anything and everything they devoted their worship to outside of Yahweh, namely Ashtaroth and the Baals, okay? The Baals were the, the idols of the Canaanite storm god Baal, god of the weather, who was responsible for bringing good crops and financial success, and who was also the male counterpart to Ashtaroth, the, the goddess of fertility. And they'd become extremely popular idols, these two, among the Israelites at the time, as these particular gods, of course, represented material wealth and love and sex, which sounds a lot like the exact same gods our culture worships today. And so Samuel leads the people of Israel into repentance where they fast and pour out water, it says, which was a symbolic expression of their emptiness and need. In fact, uh, one of the Aramaic translations of the Bible reads, they poured out their hearts like water in penance before the Lord. It was a way to express deep humility and repentance in ancient times as seen in uh, other parts of the Bible, by the way, like Lamentations 2.19, which reads, Arise. Cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. And so uh, make no mistake about it. This was a deep repentance that never would have come about had the Israelites not been deeply wounded. They were hurting. And yet the result of that hurt was the return of the people to their God, which is exactly how it should be, okay? A wounded heart should lead you to repentance, all right? What was supposed to be unfamiliar to God's people had become familiar. What they were supposed to drive out of Canaan, they not only allowed it to remain, but they embraced it, right? What they were supposed to abhor, to treat with contempt, they delighted in, and without even realizing it, their hearts had drifted far from God, and so he allowed their hearts to become wounded, not because he wanted them to suffer, but because he loved them and he wanted their hearts to belong to him alone, which is exactly why he so often allows our hearts to be wounded today, not because he wants us to hurt for the sake of hurting. No, but because in those times when we allow ourselves to drift far from God because he loves us and he wants us to return to him, he allows us to experience deep wounds. And look, the reason it took the Israelites so long to finally come to repentance was because for the longest time they blamed all of their hurt and hardship on the Philistines while simultaneously embracing the Philistines' way of life. They wanted the same things the Philistines wanted. They worshiped the same gods the Philistines worshiped. And they were as guilty of rejecting God as the Philistines were, and yet they saw the Philistines rather than their own sin and compromise as the source of their pain and wounding. But look, we can't blame our hurt on this world when we embrace the ways of this world. You hear me? We, we can't blame our hurt on this world when we embrace the ways of this world. You see, the moment you stop being offended by the things that offend God, 
That is the moment your heart begins to drift away from His. And the further your heart is from God, the more He will allow you to feel the effects of those choices, even if that means deep wounding. Not because He wants you to suffer, but because He loves you and He wants your heart all to Himself. So what offends God? Well, it's simple, really. Our sin. Our sin offends God because anything that is unholy is an offense to a holy God. The Apostle Paul said it this way, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 5 through 8. And yet we live as if God is pleased with us today, even when we embrace the ways of this world, as long as we embrace him too. Right? It's called syncretism. When we think we can embrace anything and everything this culture has to offer, as long as we also embrace Jesus, we think we're okay. Just like the Israelites thought they were okay. It's called syncretism. And the problem with syncretism is it's not okay. It's not okay. Not with a holy God. And yet it has become pervasive in modern American church culture today. This idea that we can accept and embrace every affront to a perfect, holy, righteous God and still expect him to fight for us when we come under attack to guard our hearts from being wounded when we're hurt. The whole time we're drifting further and further and further away from him without even realizing it until we're deeply wounded and then we search for something else or someone else to blame instead of doing the one thing, the only thing that will heal that wound. Repent of our sin and turn back to Christ, which is exactly what we see happening in this story today. On the eve of another great battle with the Philistines, as we'll see, the Israelites under the direction of Samuel finally get it. And with deeply wounded hearts, they repent of their sin. And the results were dramatic. And I'm telling you, we need to get back to this basic understanding of what our sin does in our own lives. It grieves the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. Our prayers become ineffective. 1 Peter 3, 7, James 5, 16, Psalm 66, 18. It deceives us. 1 John 1, 8. It quenches the Spirit's work in our lives. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22. It robs us of our joy. Psalm 51, 12. It steals away our peace. Philippians 4, 7 through 9. It hinders our fellowship with Him and with each other. 1 John 1, 6 and 7. And it takes takes away our confidence before God. 1 John 3, 21. Do you understand? If your heart is wounded and you're feeling the weight of any of these things, if you've lost your peace, your joy, your confidence, your fellowship with God, if your prayer life is weak and your strength is waning, listen to me. Before you look to the world for someone else to blame, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror with great humility and honesty and ask God to reveal anything and everything in your own life that may be causing you to drift away from him. Especially, 
when you're facing big decisions or great battles in your life, which, by the way, this used to be a foundational teaching throughout the church. Just listen to what the early leaders of our country had to say considering the battle they were facing with Britain at the time. Four months before officially declaring independence from Great Britain, the Continental Congress issued this proclamation to our entire country. In times of impending calamity and distress, when the liberties of America are imminently endangered, it becomes the indispensable duty of these hitherto free and happy colonies with true penitence of heart, with true humility, and the most reverent devotion publicly to acknowledge the overruling providence of God, to confess and deplore our offenses against Him, and to supplicate His interposition for averting the threatened danger. In other words, we need your help desirous at the same time to have people of all ranks and degrees duly impressed with a solemn sense of God's superintending providence, his control, his sovereignty, and of their duty devoutly to rely on all their lawful enterprises and on his aid and direction to earnestly recommend that Friday the 17th day of May next be observed by the said colonies as a day of humiliation fasting, and prayer, that we may with united hearts confess and bewail our manifold sins and transgressions and by sincere repentance and amendment of life appease his righteous displeasure and through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ obtain his pardon and forgiveness, humbly imploring his assistance. My goodness, how far we have drifted away from the way of repentance, the way of God. When our hearts are wounded today, our very first inclination is to blame someone else. Instead of looking in the mirror and then bowing before a holy, righteous God in humiliation and repentance. Are, are you offended by what offends God in your own life. That may cause a wound inside of you, but it's okay. He'll allow it to stay there until you deal with it. Why? Because Jesus loves you and he wants your heart all to himself. Let's keep reading verses 7 through 11. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. When the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and drew them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. So after these two decisive 
defeats of Israel in chapter 4 by the Philistines, the Philistines were able to impose their will and a heavy hand over the Israelites, which means imposing harsh restrictions on large tribal gatherings, which could be used to incite a revolt. And so it makes sense that when the Philistines hear that Israel is gathering in mass, they send their military to crush what they see as an Israelite uprising. But this time, the Israelites' approach to battle couldn't have been any more different than the previous attacks by the Philistines because instead of putting their arrogant pride in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, a box that symbolized God, now they cry out in humility and worship before the presence of God himself. And so they offer a whole burnt offering. Keep in mind, the Philistines are on the move right now. They're marching as we speak toward the Israelites, ready to crush them once again. But instead of taking up arms and marching out to meet them, the Israelites break out into a worship service. They send up to God a pleasing sacrifice, a whole burnt offering as their worship as outlined in Leviticus 1.13 as they cry out to God as with one voice. Why? Because their wounded hearts led them to realize who it was that actually deserved all of their attention and focus and adoration. Not this world or the ways of this world. Not a misguided confidence in any symbol of God or religious belief or even the fact that they identified themselves as the people of God, but only in God himself. And as they worshiped him, even while the enemy was fast approaching, God went out and fought the battle for them. He used their wounded hearts to renew their focus and relationship with him. Okay, a wounded heart should lead you to worship, which by the way, is not just something we do on Sundays, right? It's not just something you do with music. It's not just something you do when you're feeling like it. In fact, our most intensive worship should happen in the midst of our most intensive battles, our greatest struggles, our deepest wounds. You see, worship is not just something you devote some portion of your life to. No, worshiping Christ is supposed to consume everything that we are and all that we do. Because why? Because he loves you and he wants your heart all to himself. And the fact is, how you live your life every single day, that reveals what it is that you, that you truly worship. That was the case with the Israelites, and it is just as true of us today, uh, which, of course, begs the question, what occupies the majority of your thoughts? Right? What demands the majority of your attention? What requires the majority of your money? What receives the majority of your affection? What is the focus of the majority of your energy and effort, because Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Mark 12, 30, and in the ancient Greek, the word all, halos, it refers to something that is complete, lacking nothing. You understand, Jesus, Jesus didn't die for you so that he could be a part of your life. No, he died for you so that he could be all of your life and nothing less than that will do. He's not interested in having a part of you. He wants all of you and anything less is not true worship. And so even if that means allowing our hearts 
to be wounded deeply. I'm telling you, he's willing to let that happen if that's what it takes to turn our hearts back to him in real worship, which is worship that is not only all consuming, by the way, but to be clear, it is all consumed with Christ, right? The Israelites worshiped very sincerely before this. They were consumed with worship long before this. I think most of us are too. We all worship something. The problem was their worship was consumed with other things. Other gods, the ways of this world, more than anything else, themselves. So, so look, I, I don't care how good it is. It doesn't matter how good you preach or teach or sing or play or administrate or produce or host or lead or serve or give. If your worship is focused on you or impressing others or on anything else more than it is on Jesus Christ, no matter how good it is, he will not accept it because the only worship that is acceptable to God is worship that is focused on Christ alone. Okay, how you choose to live your life every single day. That is your worship to something, either to Christ or to yourself or to this world. And, and yet your life exists to worship Jesus Christ. And anything less than that is unacceptable worship. And so I'm just telling you, if a wounded heart is what it takes to turn your focus back to Christ, that is a price he is more than willing to impose on you. Why? Because he loves you and he wants your heart all to himself. Author and pastor Paul David Tripp says corporate worship is a regular gracious reminder that it's not about you. You've been born into a life that is a celebration of another. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. And then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So to commemorate their great victory over the Philistines, Samuel sets up a stone and names it Ebenezer, which means stone of the helper. So much like uh, we set up war memorials today, Samuel sets up this great stone with one notable difference. Instead of using the memorial to recall the names of fallen soldiers, Samuel uses the memorial to recall the name of the Lord who fought for them in battle. Why? So they would never forget who it was that was responsible for this great victory. And as a result, the Israelites began to do what God had called them to do when they first entered Canaan, to drive out the inhabitants, the pagan cultures from the land. And so the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. You see, out of their great woundedness, 
the Israelites were regaining a sense of purpose in obedience to God, which is how it's supposed to work. A wounded heart should lead you to obedience. The problem for us is, instead of allowing those wounds to inform our future through obedience to what he's calling us to today, too often we allow our wounds to enslave us to our past, which is exactly what uh, the Israelites did for a long time, okay? Long before this story, the Israelites left Egypt. The problem is Egypt never quite left them. They struggled for a long time with the wounds of their past to the point they were enslaved by them. And it wasn't until they chose obedience for their today that they were truly set free from their yesterday. Now, now look, there are a lot of Christians today who, although God has set them free from their past, they refuse to let the wounds of their past lead them into obedience for their future. They cling to their hurts. They cling to their sin. They cling to their fear. They hold on to their old ways of thinking, continuing to live in bondage to all the things that enslaved them before. And so they miss out on everything God has for them now. Truth is, there are a lot of Christians today who live the very same way those early Israelites did. They're children of God. They've been saved by grace through faith. They've been bought by the blood of Christ and their past has been washed clean, removed from them as far as the east is from the west. But you wouldn't know it by how they live today because they're still holding on to the wounds of yesterday. Wounds that are supposed to help them grow, but instead they've allowed them to stunt their growth, to stop them dead in their tracks. Listen, your past does not own you. Your past cannot hold you. Your past does not define you. If you are a child of God, you have been delivered from your past. So why do you cling to the wounds of your past? Well, you may be surprised to learn this. But the inability to let go of your past actually has nothing to do with your past. On the contrary, it has everything to do with your present, okay? The key to freedom from your past is radical obedience in the present. You hear me? The key to freedom from your past is radical obedience in the present. People cling to their past not because their past was so great, but because they're unwilling to be obedient to what God is calling them to now. They're afraid of the risk of obedience. They're afraid of the cost of obedience. So they revert back to what they know because that is often easier than obediently accepting what God is calling them to today. It is common when you talk to believers who are stuck in the same old patterns, seemingly unable to break free from old habits, old ways of thinking, old attitudes about their spouses or their friends or their work or their lifestyles, you will commonly find that they're quite unhappy about being stuck in those old ways of doing things or those old ways of thinking. And they will often express frustration about not being able to move on, not being able to break free from the way they've been living or thinking. And yet I'm telling you, nearly every time when you talk to them about what moving on from that old way of thinking or that old way of living would look like, there's almost always an excuse as to why they cannot do what must be done in order to move forward and finally be free from their past. It's not the wounds of the past that is the problem. 
It is an unwillingness to be obedient to God today. That is the problem. An unwillingness to allow those wounds to lead you into a new life of obedience, no matter how radical that new life may look. Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson once said, be obedient even when you do not know where obedience may lead you. Okay, look. I know it isn't the easiest thing to hear. If your heart is wounded today, the last thing you want to hear is the fact that those wounds can actually be good for your soul. But it's true. Even if it's not what you want to hear, the key is what you do with it going forward because it's your choice. It's your choice to either allow that wounded heart of yours to become a hardened heart, one that leads you further from Christ, or a healed heart, one that is restored to Christ. And one thing is for certain, that choice is yours to make and yours alone. He won't force you to choose him. But listen, he will allow your heart to hurt. Because if a wounded heart is what it takes to turn your heart back to Christ, well, I'm just telling you, that is a price he is more than willing to impose on your life. Why? Because he loves you. And he wants your heart all to himself. Let's pray.